0: Good morning, church. We today are continuing our series on the church. And today we're going to be talking about baptism. And baptism is really important for us to discuss as we talk about what the church is, what the church is meant to be. Um, because one of the things we've seen in the past couple weeks is that the church is called to be unified. There's one church, one savior, one body. And for the church, to work properly, we're called to love one another, to be united to one another. And baptism is given to us by God to be one of the markers of our unity as God's people. It's the public ceremony where we tell the world that we are part of the body of Christ. But if you look around the church around the world today, one thing you'll see is that baptism a lot of times has become a source of strife and disagreement in different churches. That, that sadly, this gift that God has given us to help us follow Him and be united to one another has actually become a barrier to people loving one another properly in the church. And one of the biggest ways this manifests itself in our day and age is from the question, who should get baptized? And I'm pretty sure that if we were to go around this room and ask every single individual who should get baptized, we would actually get different answers, even within this room. There are some people who would say, you know, baptism is only for people who have trusted in Jesus for themselves as their personal savior. If you baptize infants, you are ignoring the Bible. And we would have other people in this room who were baptized as infants, who believe that that was a step of obedience to God who have maybe even had their own children baptized as infants and believe that they are obeying God in doing that. And my guess is that for most of us, we've been taught one of these views or the other throughout our lives. And we've basically been taught that that's right. And we've never really been exposed to how someone could believe otherwise and still be following the Bible in doing that. And so today, as we talk about baptism, a lot of the sermon is gonna focus on the question, How did our views on baptism get so divided? And how do we as a church live in the midst of that tension in a way that honors God? So today I'm gonna give a brief summary of the views, the biblical views for each side of that debate. It's gonna be a slightly different sermon than normal because normally what I do in a sermon is we'll pull up a passage, we'll go through it, we'll explain what that passage is saying, talk about what that means for our lives, Today, it's gonna be a little different because we're gonna be going through the Bible, seeing what does the Bible say about baptism as a whole unity. And I realize this is a big topic. A lot of people have very strongly, firmly held beliefs about baptism. And most of us, we've been taught one thing about baptism our entire lives. So I'm not expecting anyone today to walk out of the room being like, man, I'm totally convinced that something other than what I've been taught my entire life is true. I'm not, I'm not expecting that. But my hope is that if you've been taught only one side of this debate your entire life, that at the end of today's sermon, you can have a deeper love and understanding and appreciation for how someone could believe the other side from a biblical perspective. And I hope that this can be the start of a discussion that can help us grow stronger and deeper in our understanding of baptism as a church. Does that sound good? And I realize if you're in here and you're a kid or you're a teenager, you might be wondering right now, why do I have to listen to a talk about baptism? It's a good question, right? And here's why, because this is really important for you to understand too. If we as a church need to understand baptism, you are part of the church, so you need to understand it too. And even in terms of your personal life, have you been baptized? If you were baptized, what did that mean? Why were you baptized? If you haven't been baptized, do you plan to get baptized someday? What will it mean when you do get baptized? these are really important things for you to know and to think through and to talk about with your parents. So hopefully if you pay attention today and listen and and learn more about baptism, that can give you some good things to start talking about with your parents about whether whether it's right for you to get baptized or when you should get baptized or why you should get baptized. So I invite you to, even if you're a kid or a teen, pay attention because this is important for you to know as well. And so what we're gonna see today is that baptism is the sign of entry into God's people. We'll look at the case for believer's baptism, the case for infant baptism, and then we'll talk about where do we go from here. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the Lord of your church. We thank you that you're at work in your church, even when we can't see it, as we just sang. God, I realize this is a tough topic to discuss because views are so divided on it. And I pray that as we discuss baptism today, that you would fill us with love for one another, fill us with understanding for one another and appreciation for one another and love for you most fundamentally of all. I pray that you would guide us to live and interact with one another in ways that honor you through this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're gonna start today looking at the biblical case for believer's baptism. Now, believer's baptism is the view that says baptism is to be done for people who have personally trusted in Jesus as their savior. And because of that, it should not be given to infants because infants aren't old enough to consciously trust in Jesus for themselves. So if your background in church is you come from a Baptist church or a Christian Missionary Alliance church or a Pentecostal church or a non-denominational Bible church, you probably were taught believers baptism in your past. And the churches that practice believers' baptism would typically describe or define baptism as an outward expression of an internal choice to follow Jesus. It's an outward expression, something we do outside physically, showing that we've had a transformation inside us. And the argument, for believers' baptism, comes mainly from the passages of the New Testament. So they would look at a passage like the one Satish just read for us, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And they would say, look at the order Jesus lays out here. He says, make disciples, and then he says, baptize them. So first you make disciples, first you get people to trust in Jesus, and then you baptize them. And that's, that's the pattern that the Bible calls us to follow. First people become Christians and then we baptize them. And people who support this view would then point to the book of Acts and they would show numbers of examples of this happening in this order in the early church because over and over in the book of Acts, when do people get baptized? when they become Christians. So you look at Acts chapter two, it's the day of Pentecost. Jesus, he's died, he's risen again, he's gone back to heaven. The disciples, he's told them wait in Jerusalem and they're waiting. And then on Pentecost, it's a Jewish holiday celebrating when the law was given. They're all gathered for a celebration and the Holy Spirit falls on them and these little flames of fire appear above their heads. They start speaking in strange languages. And this crowd of people, thousands of people is gathered around watching them. And everyone thinks they're drunk. And Peter stands up and he's like, no, these guys aren't drunk. This is, this is what God promised would happen before. And he preaches this sermon to them, telling them about how Jesus is God and Jesus came to save us and you killed Jesus, you killed God. And everyone's like, whoa, that's terrible. What do we do? How do we respond to this? And in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter tells them, repent and be baptized. Turn from your rebellion against God and be baptized. And let me mention, if you're here today and you're not a Christian yet, that's what the Bible is calling you to do. Recognize that you've rebelled against God. Turn or repent from your rebellion. Believe that the death of Jesus pays the price for your rebellion trust in him and then be baptized as a way of publicly expressing that faith to the world. And that's what Peter tells the crowd to do in Acts chapter two, repent, then be baptized, follows that pattern. First you believe, then you get baptized. And you keep going through the book of Acts and you see this pattern again and again and again. So in Acts chapter eight, there's a guy named Philip. He travels to an area called Samaria and he starts preaching there. And in verse 12, it says, when they believed, They were baptized, both men and women. First they believed, then they're baptized. Later in the same chapter, Acts chapter eight, verses 36 through 38. Philip, again, he's traveling. He meets this Ethiopian eunuch. He shares the gospel with him. And just like before, this guy believes, and then what happens? You know this. He believes and then he's baptized, right? In Acts chapter nine, it's the apostle Paul. He believes in Jesus and then he's baptized. In Acts chapter 10, the gospel is shared with Gentiles, the non-Jews, and again, they believe, and then they're baptized. And then in Acts 16 and 18, we meet Lydia and the Philippian jailer and a guy named Crispus, and again and again, they believe and then they're baptized. So over and over and over again in the book of Acts, this is the pattern that plays out. Someone believes in Jesus and then they're baptized. So people who believe in believer's baptism would say that's the pattern that we are called to follow today, believe and then get baptized. And then they'll often also point to this passage in Romans chapter 6 as evidence that believer's baptism is the right biblical view. Romans 6, verses three through five says, "'Do you not know that all of us "'who have been baptized into Christ Jesus "'were baptized into His death? "'We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His." Now there's a lot going on in this passage that we don't have time to unpack right now, but here's the big thing I want you to see. The language of baptism in this passage links baptism to the spiritual reality of our salvation. It it links it to Jesus dying and rising from the dead and us dying with Christ and being raised from the dead. And so people who believe in believer's baptism point to this passage and they say, see, baptism is a picture of our salvation. And it's inappropriate to give someone the, the sign of baptism if they don't already have that spiritual reality of salvation. And as someone who's studied baptism, both sides of it, a good amount, I have to say, when you put all these arguments together, they make a pretty convincing argument, right? But realize this is a debate that's been going on hundreds of years within the church, and you don't have debates go on for hundreds of years unless both sides have really solid, convincing biblical arguments. So before we just say like, yes, this is automatically the right view, let's take a minute and look at the biblical case for infant baptism and see how it stands up to the case for believer's baptism. So infant baptism is the view that says baptism is for people who have personally trusted in Jesus as their savior and for their children. Now to to just correct a couple possible misconceptions, right off the bat. First, advocates of infant baptism don't say we should baptize all infants. It's only specifically infant children of Christian parents, and we'll see just in a minute why they believe that. Also, when I talk about infant baptism here, I'm not talking about a view that says babies somehow magically become Christians by getting baptized. Um, There are churches that teach this, but that view is clearly unbiblical. If that's what you've been taught in the past, that's not a biblical view of baptism. Uh, But if your church background is in the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, Presbyterian or Reformed Church, Lutheran Church, the Methodist Church, you would have been taught infant baptism in your church background. And supporters of infant baptism— will typically describe baptism as a sign of inclusion in the covenant community. And they would also say that it's a sign of belief, but they would argue, as we're about to see, that the child himself or herself doesn't have to have this belief already in order to receive the sign. You with me so far? All right, and so for infant baptism, the argument doesn't start in the New Testament. It starts in the book of Genesis, way back at the start of the Bible. They look at Genesis chapter 17, and in Genesis 17, God has made some amazing promises. We call them covenant. He's made this covenant with Abraham, saying he's gonna make him a great nation and bless him and give him land and offspring, and that he will bless the whole world through Abraham and his descendants. And in Genesis 17, God gives Abraham a sign to show that this covenant has taken place. The sign is circumcision. It's an external sign that shows that Abraham and his family are part of God's chosen people, that they have a special promise with God. And so in circumcision, the men get a certain piece of skin cut off to show they have this special promise with God. And with the sign of circumcision, it was given to Abraham and his household and to all their male descendants when they were eight days old. Now, why was circumcision given to the babies of Abraham and his descendants in the Old Testament? Let me show you in Genesis 17:7, 7, it says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Do you see what God says here? The covenant, it's not just with Abraham, it's with Abraham and his offspring. And because it's with Abraham and his offspring, the offspring get the signs of the covenant as well. Now, does that mean that all of Abraham's descendants are automatically saved because they get circumcised? No, not at all. You read through the Old Testament, it's very clear. There were plenty of Israelites who were circumcised and fell under God's judgment. They still need to make their promises their own through faith, but they were all supposed to receive the sign of the covenant as babies, as a sign of the fact that this covenant is for them, that they belong rightfully in God's people. And the fact that they choose later on to turn from God doesn't negate the reality that they were born into a family of promise. So the infant sons of the Israelites received this covenant sign of circumcision because God's covenant was with Abraham and his descendants. But what about today? That doesn't hold true today, does it? I mean, isn't it true that salvation today depends on how we individually respond to God? Like, it we're not saved because of our parents' faith today. And that's right. We're not saved because of our parents' faith today. But that's always been the case, even in ancient Israel. No one in Israel was saved because of their parents' faith. They were simply born into a family of promise because of their parents' faith. And check out in Acts chapter two, that sermon we were just talking about where the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches, everyone says, what do we do? I told you, he said, repent and be baptized. But let's zoom out and look at the full response that Peter gives right here. Acts chapter two, verses 38 through 39. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy spirit for the promise. Who's it for? For you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord, our God calls to himself. Do you see it? We're in the new Testament and Peter, tells them to receive the covenant sign of baptism. And he tells them the promise is for you and for your children, where we heard that before. It's the same language that God used when he made his covenant with Abraham. And with Abraham, because the covenant was with him and his children, the children received the sign of the covenant or circumcision. So people who believe in infant baptism say, if the promise is for us and our children, just like the promise to Abraham was, then the infant children of believers should be baptized, just like the infant descendants of Abraham were circumcised. And you may be thinking, but come on, circumcision and baptism, they're different things. So we should do them differently, right? But if you look in the New Testament, the New Testament, connects circumcision and baptism very, very deeply. Because circumcision, it was an external sign of an inward reality, just like baptism is. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, Moses tells the Israelites that the physical sign of circumcision was actually meant to point to a spiritual reality, something that he calls circumcision of the heart. He's saying just like in in physical circumcision, a physical piece of skin is cut away from the man's body. In this circumcision of the heart, sin is meant to be cut away from our hearts. And we just saw in Romans 6 that believer's baptism says baptism parallels this by being an external sign that shows an inward spiritual reality of salvation that just as we were buried under the water in a picture of death and then raised again in a picture of new life, we have spiritually died with Jesus to our sins, been buried with Him and then been raised with Him to live a new life following and obeying God. So actually circumcision and baptism point to the same spiritual realities. And Paul in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, links the two of them explicitly. He says, In him also you were circumcised. That's him is Jesus here. In Jesus you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Again, tons of stuff that we could unpack here. We don't have time to unpack it all. But the big thing I want you to see, see how he talks about this circumcision made without hands. That's the circumcision of the heart, the spiritual circumcision, that physical circumcision points to. And what does he link it to? Baptism. So he's showing that somehow circumcision and baptism parallel one another and point to the same spiritual realities. Baptism in the New Testament, points to the same spiritual realities that circumcision did in the Old Testament. And so people who believe in infant baptism argue that it should be practiced in a similar way, given to believers and to their children. So that's the foundation of the biblical argument for infant baptism. Now, obviously, we just saw believer's baptism has some strong evidence going for it, like the fact that that's what everyone does in the New Testament, right? And it seems like that's what Jesus is pointing to in the Great Commission. So how do people who believe in infant baptism respond to that? You know, when when Jesus says, make disciples, before he says, baptize them in the Great Commission, what do people who support infant baptism say to that? Well, they would say two things. First, the Great Commission is fundamentally a call to missions. It's a call to go out and share the gospel where the gospel has not been shared before. And if you're going to share the gospel with people who haven't heard the gospel before, it's essential that people believe before they get baptized. Everyone agrees on that. The question from the infant baptism perspective is what do you do with their children? Which we'll come back to in just a minute. But second, they would say, think about what a disciple is. What's a disciple? A disciple is a learner or a student or an apprentice. Jesus, when he says, make disciples, he's commanding us to train people to know him and follow him and love him and be like him. And if you're a Christian parent and you have a baby in your home, at what point do you start training that baby to be a follower of Jesus? Age four? No, you start on day one. That's, that's part of the, the, the job of being a Christian parent. You don't wait until you know, age four and then be like, all right, son, I have something really important that I need to talk to you about that I've never told you before. That would be ridiculous. We, we, as Christian parents, we start training our children to follow Jesus on day one. If you're a Christian parent and you never talk with your kids about Jesus until they're four years old, there is a problem in your house. And people who believe in infant baptism would say, look, you're starting to train your child as a disciple from day one. So there's no good reason not to baptize this child as a baby, since they're already in that process of being made a disciple, because that process has already started. So that's how they'd respond to that question. Okay, but what about the fact that everyone we see in the New Testament, they believe first and then they get baptized? How do you respond to that if you believe in infant baptism? Well, supporters of infant baptism would point out, again, that in all of these circumstances, the people we read about are adults who believe and they come from non-Christian backgrounds. And again, if you have an adult coming from a non-Christian background who believes in Jesus, everyone from both sides of the debate agrees that they need to be baptized. But... People who believe in infant baptism point out nowhere in the New Testament do we have a record of what happened to the children of the people who believed. We have no record of whether their children were baptized in that moment or whether their children were forced to wait until later on when they believed to get baptized. The closest thing we have to some possible indication is what's called household baptisms. Household baptisms are three different places in the New Testament. Someone believes, and it says they were baptized with their entire household. So that's Lydia in Acts 16, the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, and Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 1. In all of these passages, someone believes they get baptized and we're told that their household was baptized with them. Sort of like Abraham when he first received the sign of circumcision, his household was circumcised with him. And it doesn't tell us explicitly whether there were children in these households, but there is a good chance that one or more of these households had children or babies included in them with these new Christians. But again, the Bible doesn't say exactly who was included in these household baptisms, so we can't know for sure. There's also one other big piece of evidence, not from the Bible, but that is interesting in this discussion, that points towards infant baptism being what the Bible calls for. And it's this we have historical records from the year about 150 AD, so that's about 120 years after Jesus, maybe about 50 years after the last of the disciples died, showing that infant baptism was a widespread practice pretty much. I don't know about universally, but widely used throughout the church, throughout the world within such a short time from Jesus. And it was practiced by pretty much the entire church worldwide up until the 1500s. And so if infant baptism is wrong and it goes against the teaching of the Bible, it's really hard to explain how it came into such widespread use so fast after Jesus and the apostles without any type of controversy or backlash coming with it. And again, that's not from the Bible, but it's something that needs to be considered in this discussion. So that's the summary of the main arguments for believer's baptism and infant baptism. There are more details that can be pulled out on each side, but that's the, that's the big points. And I, I realize it's a hard debate. It would be much easier if the Bible just said, you shall baptize the children of believers or you shall not baptize the children of believers, right? Wouldn't that make it so much easier? <laughs> and like I said, most of us have come from churches that taught us one side or the other of this debate throughout our lives. And I don't expect anyone to completely flip and change their mind based on what we talked about for the past 20 or 30 minutes. But hopefully knowing this can help you understand the people who believe differently than you and appreciate them and love them and understand that they actually, they're, they're believing what they believe because they're trying to follow the Bible. And hopefully it can also encourage you, if you're curious to learn more, to do more study on your own and have more conversations about this. But in the rest of our time together, I wanna ask the question, where do we go from here? Like, why is it important for us to talk about this as a church? What are we gonna do with this information? And to give some context, let me, let me share what this little dartboard picture thing, bullseye picture is. I once heard someone describe Christian beliefs as being broken down into three categories. Category one, the core beliefs, things that if someone doesn't believe this, they are not a Christian. Questions like, is Jesus God? Did Jesus rise from the dead? If you say no to those questions, you are not a Christian, I don't care what you say about yourself. These are the the core things that if someone walks into the room with a gun and holds it to your head and says, do you believe this? You say yes. I'm willing to die for these beliefs. Category two is beliefs where Christians who love God and believe the Bible can disagree, can still look at one another and say, you're a Christian, you're my brother or sister, I love you, I support you, I affirm you, but it's gonna be really hard for them to be part of the same church. So for example, say that there's someone who believes based on what they see in the Bible that pastors should be men. And there's another church in their neighborhood that has a woman as a pastor. Now this person could look at that church and say, they're a true church, they're my brothers and sisters, but this person in good conscience is not gonna be able to go to that church because there's just what they're doing, they don't believe is biblical. And so they're gonna to go to a different church. That's a category two belief. And then category three beliefs are things where Christians can disagree and still be part of the same church and serve alongside one another. And it's not a huge deal that separates them from one another. So for example, in the bridge, we have people who have a range of beliefs about the end times and what things will be like when Jesus comes back. My beliefs about that are probably different than many of your beliefs about that, but that's never stopped us from being part of the same church or doing ministry together. And that's a category three belief. Now, if you break down Christian beliefs in this way, where do you think baptism belongs? Anyone think it's category? You don't have to put your hands up, but does anyone think it's category one? Like if someone disagrees with me and thinks that we should baptize infants, like they're not a Christian, okay? How about category two? Like there can still be Christians, but it'd be tough to be part of the same church. Or category three, like we can disagree. It's not gonna cause big issues from us being in the same church. Most people I think would probably put it in category two where you can disagree with someone and say that, yes, they're definitely a Christian, but it's gonna be hard to be part of the same church as them, which makes sense. Cause if you're, if you're baptized as a baby and you start going to a Baptist church and they're like, you need to get baptized again to be a member here. And you're like, but I was already baptized. I don't need to be baptized again. It's gonna be hard to be part of that church. Or if, if you believe in believer's baptism, it's hard to be in a church where you're watching babies get baptized on a regular basis, right? Because you believe that they're doing something that's not quite right according to how you read the Bible. But we as elders want to invite us as the Bridge Church family to move forward saying, yes, this probably is a category two issue, but, we're gonna treat it more like a category three issue. Now here's what we're saying and not saying when we say this. We're not saying baptism is unimportant. Baptism is very important. It's good for us to talk about it and, and debate about it. And I think you know, for some of us holding this tension will probably be hard and that's okay. But we are saying the unity and love that we have in Christ is more important, more central, than any disagreements we have about whether or not to baptize babies. And to destroy that unity because we have disagreements about whether or not to baptize babies would be sad and I think would bring dishonor on the name of Jesus. We're also not saying you can hold any view of baptism that you want. There are churches like the Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church that teach if you baptize a baby, that baby automatically becomes a Christian simply by being baptized. That is clearly not biblical. Salvation comes through faith. On the flip side, on the believer's baptism side, the Church of Christ says, it doesn't matter if you trust in Christ, you're not fully a Christian until you get baptized. Again, that's not biblical. Salvation comes through faith alone. And and these views that say that baptism somehow contributes to our salvation, they cross category one lines by adding good works to our salvation, by saying we're not just saved through faith in Jesus, we're saved by faith in Jesus plus what we do to earn it. And that's clearly not biblical. We're saved by trusting in Jesus, full stop. And so if if you're holding a view of baptism that crosses a category one line, that's not biblical. we wanna invite you to have some conversations with us about what, what it looks like to hold a biblical view of baptism because baptism is important. And again, what we are saying is that some doctrines, like the level one, two, three, some doctrines are higher priorities than others. And we believe God wants us to prioritize loving one another over whether or not we baptize babies because there are solid Christians who love Jesus and deeply believe the Bible who fall on both sides of this argument. And rather than fighting and separating on this issue where the Bible doesn't draw black and white lines as clearly as we might want them drawn, we want to invite the church to love and encourage and affirm one another as we seek to follow Jesus according to the Bible's teaching. And on one level, this has actually already been happening in the bridge for a long time. If you're a member here, you had to sign something saying you agreed to the church's statement of faith. Now, when you sign that, do you remember what the statement of faith said about baptism? No one's saying anything and that's good because actually our statement of faith says nothing about baptism right now, which probably needs to change. It's good for a church to include something about baptism in its statement of faith. But I think the silence in our statement of faith when it comes to baptism, points to the fact that on one level, the bridge has historically already been treating baptism as a category three issue in theory, if not in practice. We've been able to prioritize our unity as brothers and sisters who come from all around the world, from all sorts of different church traditions. And we've been able to say what we have in common in Christ is greater than things that divide us. And I think that's beautiful. But what we're doing now is we're inviting us to take this one step further. We, we as elders have talked, and we want to move slowly in the direction of allowing parents to choose for themselves, for their own children, whether to have them baptized as infants or whether to wait until they believe in Jesus for themselves to get them baptized. And we realize this is a big change from the way things have historically been done at the bridge. We want to make this transition slowly so that people have time to Think through it and, and get on board with it. We're not planning to do an infant baptism next week. Um, but we recognize we have people from our chur- in our church from all sorts of different backgrounds. Some people in our congregation come from traditions where infants are baptized and they believe that the best way for them to follow God is by having those infants baptized in the church. And we want to give parents freedom to follow their conscience and what they believe the Bible is teaching them in this issue, especially because the Bible doesn't give as black and white of an answer as we might want. And we wanna invite the church to love them and support them as we do this. And we know some of you may have questions or concerns about this because it's, it's different than the way we've done things in the past. As far as I know, the bridge has never baptized a baby before. Um, so if that's you, please come talk to me or Les or Arnell or one of the elders. Uh, we would love to talk with you. We would love to hear your concerns. We'd love to have a chance to discuss any questions you have and, and be able to address them. Um, yeah, we, we really encourage you, don't just, if you have questions or concerns, don't just keep them to yourselves, share them with us. We'd love to chat with you about them because baptism is really important. And yet when it comes to our children, the Bible doesn't give us answers as black and white as we might want them to be on whether or not they should get baptized. And on an issue like this, where the Bible isn't as black and white as we would want it to be, we don't wanna split the community by drawing a firm black and white line either. So again, if you have questions, concerns, comments, please come talk to us. I know there's a ton more about baptism that we could discuss. Um, Like I said, I'd love to see this sermon as the start of a discussion, not the end of a discussion. And I'd love to see us continue this conversation as a community in the weeks and months to come. But for now, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of baptism and for giving us this wonderful way of showing the world that we belong to you. God, I pray that you would forgive us as your people for the times that we have allowed this sign of unity to become a tool for division. God, I pray that as we think through baptism and talk about it in the weeks and months to come, that that you would be honored through our discussions, that we'd be able to have them in love, that we would seek to understand one another, that our unity would be coming to the fore in all of these discussions. That the world around us would see the love we have for one another and that it comes from you and that they would be drawn to follow you as well god we thank you that you love us teach us to love one another in jesus name amen